This is a Holy Baptist Church podcast, bringing you into a community in which everyone is welcome, lives are changing, and Jesus is King. Thanks for listening with us today. We would invite you to subscribe so you can keep up to date with us. But for now, we pray you enjoy listening for what God has in store for you in this episode, and that it helps change your life for the better, in Jesus' name. Enjoy. This opportunity to look at Jesus together, and uh, to to focus our minds and our hearts on him. As I said in that first session, not remotely interested in telling us new stuff about him, but together encountering him, meeting him. What does Paul say about Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were enemies in your minds, alienated because of our evil behavior, but now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation if we we continue in him. What an incredible Jesus he is. You might like to notify your faces. Anyway, right, so this is the uh, the second part of uh, uh, a study in speaker suicide by looking at uh, another passage that will be very, very familiar under this, this idea of go tell the world. And this is where we begin. We've looked in this first session about, you know, what is the marvelous dimensions, the magnitude of this gospel um, revealed in John 4. And then in this session, we begin to look at some of the personal implications of what does it mean for you and me. And um, Keris just said to me in the, in the break, she said, you might just want to clarify your view about El Alpha. Um, uh, <laughs> did anybody else marry a great qualifier? <laughs> Someone who just tempers your comments. Uh, so, so I, yes, so I, I am a huge fan, I really am, of Alpha, and I'm not being in any way critical. I was just trying to help us see where we love to play on our turf and our terms. It doesn't mean that Alpha is anything other than inspired by the Holy Spirit and an enormous gift to the church across the world. Keris and I were at the uh, HTB Leadership Conference last month and just Alpha being translated into Chinese and the videos are just incredible. The Mandarin versions of the Alpha going globally. Oh, it's just wonderful. And all the testimonies and everything. Hope I've done my disclaimer. (laughs) Let's just be aware that we're not even conscious of the times we just want to keep safe and play on our turf and our terms. And Jesus is bigger than that. 
And we'll come back to that towards the end, but I love Alpha. <laughs> Actually, I'm already in trouble with my wife about something else because we're, I'm so glad we're here because it's a bit of respite to be, fru to be truthful. Because um, we are living in one room in my brother's and, uh, brother-in-law and sister's house at the moment while we get this cottage I showed you earlier kind of done. So that means everything we own is in storage. And I, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your marriages, but I, I, I remember Kerry said to me very, very clearly when I think about it, Andy, we don't know how long this is going to take, so when you put all of our clothes in storage, make sure that our summer clothes are accessible. Now, I understood that. I heard that. When we got to the uh, storage unit, I had to get this much stuff with my son-in-laws uh, into that space. Well, that became a challenge that eclipsed all previous <laughs> information. So we were opening bags and putting shoes and clothes in drawers and shutting, and we got it all in. No idea where any of the summer clothes are. So I'm just in a little bit of the doghouse here, so you could pray for me. Anyway. Go tell the world, get back to the plot. Um, so this, this, this is our, our, our second story of the morning. And uh, we pick this story up in Mark chapter 2. This is, this is the, the story of God-ordained vandalism. This is the story of wrecking Peter's roof. Um, and uh, we'll unpack this together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, that's a bit odd straight away because everybody knows that Jesus was from Nazareth, right? We've all seen the film, Jesus of Nazareth. But now they're talking about Capernaum as a home. Capernaum was the home of Peter. And so what it appears has happened is that when Jesus was rejected by the people of Nazareth, his base became Peter's home. And so uh, by um, the time of this story, uh, people were effectively talking about Peter's home as Jesus' home as well. Uh, it was the retreat place for his downtime. He's R&R. He's been busy in ministry, and he just wants a break. It's a venue for rest. But then we read, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Uh, so he's disturbed at home. All through chapter 1, the fame of Jesus, chapter 1 of Mark, the fame of Jesus has been growing. He can't escape the crowds. He is the, you know, the, the hot ticket in town and everybody wants to uh, be in his presence. And so now they're even interrupting him at home. And verse 2 describes the scene that sets the context for the whole story. And again, as with stories, the, the author is inviting us to use our imagination. Have you ever been in a crowd that it is so tight that you can't move? Um, have you ever been in a sports crowd where there's a goal or someone scores a try and the whole crowd surges forward and you are out of control and momentarily you're off your feet? I mean, it's, it's a terrifying uh, experience, actually. Um, uh, that's the kind of crush that Mark wants us to imagine. 
you can't move inside and you can't move outside. It's so crowded. So what did Jesus do? Well, he preached the word to them. (laughs) It was a shorthand way of saying, Jesus started to announce that in him the kingdom of God had come. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so he preached from his living room uh, as he saw how thirsty the crowd were to hear from him. And then uh, there were probably more than four friends working in shifts, but we hear about four of them, carrying a disabled man on a thin straw mat. And they'd been hoping to bring this man into the presence of Jesus because they'd heard of his healing powers, but they couldn't get in. They couldn't get near the house. And so they go up the outside, uh, they go around the back and, and come up the outside. Now, Near Eastern houses had flat roofs and they had um, uh, uh, stairs, uh, stone-built stairs going up the back. The roofs weren't particularly high, but that's where you'd catch the breeze. That's where people would um, uh, get a bit of air. And so they, they uh, go up the outside stairs onto the flat roof and then they start digging. The roof would have been made of mud and straw, and the cottage that I'm renovating at the moment, uh, it's called Cobb Mud and Straw, and um, our our cottage is stone and then Cobb on top. I tell you what, it's tough stuff. It doesn't fall apart easily. Um, This Cobb I've been working with has been there for 200 years, and you you have to really smash smash it with a pickaxe to to get any purchase on it. And it will hold up huge weights. We've got a a new roof just resting on mud and straw. Um, So they were going to be at it for a while. They are breaking through this roof of mud and straw. Um, And... uh, Uh, And really, it's quite an extraordinary thing. Why would you do that? Well, they were absolutely desperate to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus, and the crowd was stopping them. Now, this is, you you know what we know about Peter in the Gospels? You know, quite a hothead, big personality character, man who's not unknown to violence. This is his house. I mean, I assume he was there. I mean, you know, from everything I read of Peter in the Gospels, you start messing with his roof and it could hurt. But they were absolutely desperate to get their friend into the, into the presence of Jesus. And, and I, I, love the, um, I, I love the Greek here. It basically just says they unroofed the roof. <laughs> They just, they just dug a hole. And if they're going to get their mate through the hole, it's going to be a pretty big hole. And if Jesus is teaching in the living room, at some point prior to a bloke coming down, there would have been mud and straw coming down on his head. And the crowd would have all been coming. But nobody can move, so they're just kind of stuck. Oh, come on, it's just a funny scene. I mean, it, 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 just, it just captures my imagination. And then there is this uh, beautiful uh, uh, line. Since they could not get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, let's just stop there. When Jesus saw their faith, faith is 
visible. It was visible to Jesus. He saw what motivated their actions and it was also visible to everybody else. It was a belief that Jesus could help their friend. And they held that belief so strongly that they were prepared to put themselves out and into, some and into particular risk to go out of their way to make a huge physical effort to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. And when they discovered that it was not going to be as easy as they first thought, they did what was daring, what was difficult, and had a certain amount of danger, given Peter's reputation. They did the controversial. They did anything to get the job done, which was to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. Real faith was visible then, and real faith is visible now. The friend's belief had consequences in their actions which could be observed by others. Let me say that again. The friend's belief in Jesus had consequences and actions which could be observed by others. Karis and I had lunch this week uh, with Anna. We have known Anna since she was 11 years old. And um, she came to faith uh, with her brother at a middle school Christian union. And her parents said, we don't want you to have anything to do with Christianity. You're not allowed to go to church until you're 16. So between the ages of 11 and 15, she had one moment of discipleship a week with um, one of my colleagues who ran the Christian Union at the school on a Thursday lunchtime. As soon as she and Jonathan were 16, they started coming along to church. Uh, as soon as they were 18, they got baptized. And this week we met Anna at uh, Salisbury Cathedral uh, where she's on leave for three weeks. She's the country director for Med Air in Lebanon. Previously, she has worked in Syria, the Congo, and Iraq. She has spent her whole life since she graduated uh, in Christian organizations, um, working in some of the most dangerous places on earth as a single woman. And I did an interview recently with her, and she just said, I, I just had to, right at the start, decide, did my life completely belong to Jesus? And if it does, then fear can't play a part in my decision-making. And so she's been held up at gunpoint in the Congo. Um, she has a staff of 150 now in Beirut, which is in Lebanon, which is just a nightmare place to be. And she says, you know, at the moment ISIS are quiet, but they aren't always quiet. And, and here was a person whose faith was profoundly visible, wasn't it? We've known her since she was 11, and now, you know, we just, we look up to her. We are just, uh, just hugely admirable of her faith. And, and she's just very matter-of-fact about it. I gave my life to Jesus. 
The rest is about location. Jesus saw their faith. We'll come back to the rest of that verse in a moment, but let's just have a question for discussion together for a moment. Let's, uh, you, you may have got bored of each other's company, so you could find another group. But, um, <laughs> but the question is, how is our faith visible to people around us? I can see that there's not an immediate enthusiasm for this group. Come on, let's go for it. How's our, how's our faith um, visible to the people around us? And showing, you know, having them see you pray and seeing the outcomes and just seeing how your life is from having that faith. Yes. Okay, so um, how, do we, how do we behave at home when there are members of the family who don't share our faith? And that's the situation that Keris and I have as well. And um, uh, we love that we, when, when we get together with our, our three children and their, their other halves, so there's the eight of us together, that prayer is part of what we do at a mealtime. And, um, you know, and, and it, yes, it's created a fascinating dynamic. Our eldest son... Um, he gets grace better than most Christians. His favorite author is C.S. Lewis, but he hasn't signed up to following Jesus yet. Uh, and his partner is, is just wonderfully open. Um, and uh, we just have, we started a meal recently with Grace, didn't we? And then there, just this conversation flowed as she asked one question after another. And it was just, yeah, so doing simple things like that in a family context, um, just, yeah. And for those with younger children, we, our, our, our motto was always, well, um, you, you can opt out, but you don't have to opt in because this is who we are. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is our identity. This is a family following Jesus. At the back there. Yeah, I'm going to say this for Amir because Amir came up with some very good answers, but his English isn't um, able to express that. So um, he said, first of all, that um, respecting each other, how we treat each other, and um, in his opinion, the behaviour of each person is a sign of their personality and faith. Amir, I think you're absolutely right. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, there's something about the way we treat one another which makes faith visible. Yep, great. Others? What makes our faith visible? Yes. Start again. <laughs> oh, okay. Just to add what uh, that group said, uh, the faith is visible to others, whether it's your family members or loved ones or friends or colleagues or wherever you go or wherever you live. It's through your testimony or the witness, what we, whatever we call, uh, testimonies or witnesses not always just to say through your words that your faith, it's the way how you live. Sometimes your life will show your faith that you believe the mighty God, Jesus. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Who was it who said, at all times preach the gospel and when necessary use words? Yeah. Wonderful. Others? Yes. At the back here. 
Um, I think it's visible when we take a step of faith. Um, I think the biggest step of faith I've taken is when I decided to open my home to homeless young people. And I was terrified. I'm, as people will know, I'm a very fearful person. And uh, particularly, I thought, I can't have young men in my house. I'm a woman on my own. But I did, and God really blessed that. And I never once felt fear. Um, you know, even some of the young people had been violent to their parents, but God just took the fear away. And did he take the fear away before they came in, or did he take the fear away once they were there? I think before they came, right. I, I just had such an utter conviction it was God's will. Yeah. It was all the result of Neil's sermon on the Good Samaritan, yeah. and I just knew God was telling me to do it. And I thought, well, if God wants me to do it, he'll look after me. And wow. he has. Um, it's been amazing. <laughs> so faith is visible when we take steps of faith. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, one more, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll crack on. Because I'm the only thing standing between you and lunch. So, um... I'm just going to say, I think our faith is most visible when we build relationships with people. Um, so the better we know them, or the better they know us it becomes more visible. Yeah. 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 You see, so often today we get this wrong. When we ask the question, do you have faith? We, we assume that that is about a set of beliefs. It's what we do with what we believe that is faith. Faith is belief with consequences for how we live. That's why James said faith without works is dead. That's why Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. Faith is, with, is belief with consequences as to how we live. And our beliefs have to be strong enough to determine how we live or act. Otherwise, it's not faith. So is our faith visible? Do people around us know what we believe by the way we live? Where is it that our actions do not make sense unless Jesus is Lord? Can any, anyone around us see that our faith makes a visible difference to the way we live? That's the challenge of what it means to follow this Jesus. So back to the story. Um, as the man on the mat lands on the floor... Jesus says something entirely unexpected. In verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What's that about? <laughs> he's come for healing. He's not, he's not, oh, that's not me. What happens with the screen up there now? Oh, you can't see anything. It says 4 minutes, 50 seconds, power off. doesn't say it anymore it's a miracle right <laughs> thank you sir um so what's it what's that about your sins are forgiven and and just after he said that mark now introduces uh the the elephant in the room well there's no room for an elephant but it is an elephant in the room now some teachers of the law were sitting there so in other words, this house isn't just crammed full of people who love Jesus. They're, the jury's there as well. There are teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
So at this point we become aware that there are religious, in the room, religious leaders in the room, men of letters, religious and community leaders whose job was to preserve what it meant to be Jewish under Roman occupation. And the way they did that, and they had a very strong faith and were very courageous with it, was that they had to keep Judaism distinctive. And so they acted as the kind of regulatory body for all Jewish teaching and behavior. And when they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, they thought two things. One was right and one was wrong. The first thing they thought was, only God can forgive sins. Correct. So Jesus must be best blaspheming. No, wrong. And incidentally, um, that was the choice Jesus presented people with then. And that's the choice he presents us with now. He's either the son of God or he's a blasphemer. There's, there's no middle ground on that. So, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. Jesus reads their minds and he confronts them. He ups the ante. He brings into the public domain what had previously been their private thoughts. Why are you thinking these things? That must have been a pretty scary moment when they... Were, uh, okay, was I that transparent? My wife does that to me sometimes and it's very disconcerting. So notice here, Jesus was not conflict adverse. He initiates the challenge. He exposes them. This is Christ the controversialist. Jesus confronted Jesus came to be a peacemaker. That doesn't always mean that he was a peacekeeper. To be a peacemaker, sometimes you have to get the tensions and the conflicts to the surface so they can be resolved. Uh, there's all the difference in the world. I, my, my 37 years of pastoral ministry in local churches would be to, one of the things I've learned is that Christians don't understand the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Uh, we're to be peacemakers. That doesn't mean we're just to brush everything under the carpet to keep everything okay. Jesus here is initiating the conflict. He's drawing out the conflict because he wants to bring peace to the world. This whole chapter is edited by Mark to show how bringing the message that to repent, to repent and believe the good news brought Jesus into conflict with Jewish religious leaders who had a very different idea about what pleasing God looked like. And as Jesus' fame grew in chapter 1 of Mark, so does the opposition in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. That gets him in trouble. Then there's his teaching about fasting, which gets him in trouble. Then there's his teaching about the Sabbath in verse 24, which gets people in trouble, uh, gets him in trouble. And then in chapter 3, he performs a healing on the Sabbath. And by chapter 3, verse 6, it says, the Pharisees and the Herodians started to plot how they could could kill Jesus. So the whole point of the way that Mark is editing chapter 2 of Mark is to say, to show that following this king will lead Jesus and his disciples into conflict. Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is near and that announces a confrontation with every other kingdom, with every other reign and with every other king. Here is the second point this morning. If you believe that Jesus is king, you will inevitably experience conflict 
with our culture. So next question is, in what ways should we anticipate conflict with our culture? Back to those friends you've just been making. Or, or, or do you want a completely new group? Should we be really radical? No. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot myself. We're in church. Yeah, no, that's no, right. Okay, same people. Let's talk again. You've got no more than ooh, three minutes. In what ways should we... Rather than, rather than get feedback at this point, I want to leave time at the end for response. So just hold those thoughts. Jesus' message of forgiveness and grace didn't sit well with Jewish religious leaders then. They had, they had a completely different idea of what it meant to please God. And a message that we need the forgiveness of God will not sit well in our culture today either. Our culture is very different to the culture that this story was written in. But there's still conflicts to be had. As soon as we dare to suggest that our faith might not be just true for me, but have implications for everyone, we're in hot water in our culture immediately. If Jesus is king, then conflicts will always occur with every other authority in the world. I remember when I was um, in ministry, I went on a prayer retreat, and it was one of those times when there was conflict in the church. And I was really disturbed by it. I was a young pastor. I hadn't been around the block very long. And, uh, you know, there, were, there was real conflict in the church. And it's so paralyzing when that happens in churches. We do have to guard our unity. And I was going for a walk in the woods and just, you know, I was very weighed down and, um, and praying. And then the most ridiculous thing happened. Uh, there were two squirrels in the tree above me having a fight and they were having such a fight that they fell out the tree and they landed right in front of me and it was like a Disney film animation where they both sat up bolt upright blinked looked at me and then ran off in different directions and I burst out laughing it was really comical and I felt Jesus saying to me that verse from John 10.10, 10, in this world you will face trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That conflict is an inevitable part of what it means to follow Jesus because he claims to be Lord and King over every other power and authority. And if there's not conflict at some point in our lives, we have to ask the question about our discipleship. So, at this point, back to the story, Jesus is now reading the room. He has done something invisible. He has forgiven the man's sins. But everybody else is skeptical about whether that's happened. And so this is classically now, Jesus is going to do something visible to prove that he also did the invisible. So he says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. 
Some people in the crowd, the skeptics, are thinking that it's easy to kind of pray for forgiveness, give forgiveness to someone because you can't see the results. And so now Jesus needs to turn that around. And look what happens here. Oh, no, gone the wrong way. Um, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out. Two miracles. Can you see the two miracles here? We read in the start of this chapter that the house was so crowded that they couldn't get in. They had to get in through the roof. Now he can walk out. How come? Well, I think the only way to read it, well, not the only way, we're all invited to use our imaginations at this point. We're set with two pieces of information. At the first, the guys had to climb up on a roof and break a hole in it because the crowd was so dense. But now this man can walk out. How come? I think everybody has just been going, whoa. I hope I don't fall off the back of this stage. I didn't check that out before. But they just made room. as he, Like royalty would come to me. Every, everybody walking. Two miracles. Not just the healing, but he could walk out. I'm being a bit facetious. But notice the point that Jesus is making. He's doing the visible to prove the authority that he had, the the authority he had to do the invisible. This is a classic uh, signpost miracle. He proves he has power to forgive by performing the miracle of healing. He did the second miracle to prove the reality of the first. He did the visible to prove the invisible. And it finishes, I love that line, this amazed everyone, you don't say. And they praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's a great story, isn't it? What what do we do with that? The most important thing, I think, about Mark chapter 2 is the insistence of Jesus that our sin is our deepest problem. They wanted him physically healed, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The disabled man thought that if only he could be healed, everything would be okay. He could find a job, a wife, have a family, and everything would be sorted. His friends believed the same, that if only he could be healed, everything would be okay. Jesus was so impressed with their faith, but not with their thinking. They believed Jesus could meet this man's deepest need. They just didn't realize what his deepest need really was. They were desperate for him to be healed. But Jesus was desperate to forgive him his sin. Because without forgiveness, he would have no real lasting peace in this world and hope in the next. As Jesus said, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? The Jesus of this story says that our biggest problem in the world today, the biggest problem in your life and mine, is our sin. Sin is not so much individual acts, it's the all-encompassing mindset of living without reference to God. And what Jesus says is, is that our deepest wishes are not actually deep enough. 
Our deepest wishes are superficial and shallow understandings of what will make us happy and bring us lasting fulfillment. When Jesus says that actually our deepest need is for a saviour, it's not that our desires are wrong, it's just that they're not profound enough. It's 37 years as a church pastor, listening to our prayers, reading prayers when people have written them, reading back on my own journals since I was 18 years old. Oh my word, am I so glad that God did not answer so many of my prayers. I'd have married a different woman, for starters. That would have been a disaster. No, it's because I'm so very happy to be married to Kerry. That's what I mean. Just just to clarify, (laughs) we've moved on from the storage issue, right? We're okay on that one. No, but I look back on my journey. How many of you look back on your lives and think, oh, for goodness sake, Lord, I'm so glad you didn't answer that prayer with a yes. It's not that our thinking was wrong. It was that our our aspirations were just not profound enough. This is the Jesus who we worship, who knows everything about us. You see, we do not need a God who grants us our wishes. We need a God who saves us from our sin. And that's why Jesus confronted the way the religious leaders were thinking. That's why he's hard on them in this story Why? Because it's the first time he's labelled as a blasphemer, even in their minds. And by chapter 14 of Mark, that's exactly what gets him crucified. The shadow of the cross is looming over this healing. By forgiving this man and proving that he has done so, Jesus really knew that he was signing his own death warrant. He is labelled as a blasphemer from that moment on. There's no turning back. He was going to die for the sins of the world. He was putting himself forward to die, not only for that disabled man, but for you and for me. If Jesus had only been a messenger from God, the religious leaders would have been right. He was a blasphemer. You can only forgive sin if the sin is against you. In claiming to forgive, Jesus was claiming to be God. The logic of the passage goes like this. All sin is against God, so in offering forgiveness, Jesus was saying, I am God. Only God can pay the price for sin, so Jesus needs to become the saviour of the world by dying on the cross. He signed his death warrant in this story. Wow. So a wonderful story. Vandalism of a roof. Three points. Faith is visible. Following our king into conflict with our culture is inevitable. And our deepest need is our sin. And I could sit down now and we could, you know, have lunch. But hold on a minute. Let's just ask one more question. But how do we live like that? How does this story inform our story so that our faith is visible, that we're not dodging conflict and we're living like sin is the big problem of the world? How do we live like that? Well, there is one very simple thing 
that all of us can do which immediately ticks all three of those boxes. And do you know what it is? It's to do exactly what the friends did on the roof. They introduced their friend to Jesus. They got their friend into the presence of Jesus. Whenever we start sharing our faith, introducing people to our faith, inviting them to Alpha, inviting them to church, what happens? Immediately, we, we are making our faith visible. Immediately, we are risking conflict and rejection. And immediately, we are treating those people as if their deepest need and our need is our sin. There is one very simple way to live out this story, and it's to do what the friends did on the roof. Because when we introduce people to Jesus, when we invite people to church, when we share our faith, we are immediately making our faith visible. We are immediately uh, risking conflict, and we are immediately saying our deepest need is our sin. That's the genius of the story. That by doing what the friends of the disabled man did, we put into practice the other three principles of the story. They brought someone into the presence of Jesus. Simple really, isn't it? So simple. But there's an awful lot of difference between simple and hard. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not easy. It's hard. And why is it hard? And one of the reasons it's hard is because we fear rejection. That's why we like doing the alpha thing on our terms and our, you know, won't go back there, I love alpha, love alpha, really love alpha, right. But, but there's, we fear rejection. We don't, we fear people saying, huh, you've got to be joking, no. Why do we fear that? Because who else was rejected? Rejected by men. Who else was condemned? Oh, Jesus. So when we invite people to church, or we invite people to Alpha, or we share with people our faith, if they respond positively, it's for them. And if they reject us, that's when it's for us. Because we meet Jesus in his rejection. We worship a Jesus who is transcendent, who is beyond us. So we meet him not in our safety zones, but we meet him on the margins of our lives. We meet him in grief, which I may talk about tomorrow morning. And we meet him in risk and adventure, as um, uh, this sister at the back was sharing earlier. You Stepping out and doing something that's scary. Jesus is always beyond us. He's in our midst. He's imminent, but he's also transcendent. And we live in that tension. So we meet him on the margins of our lives. We meet him when we do things for the first time, when we take steps and risks. And so when we share our faith, if people say yes, it blesses them. If we get a rejection, that's a moment where we identify with the Jesus who was rejected and we meet him there.
The magic of this story is that the three principles of making faith visible, of risking conflict with our culture, and sin being our biggest issue, are all hit by doing one simple thing, inviting other people into the presence of Jesus. It's simple, but it's so hard because so much hinges on that moment. Go tell the world. Forget it. Unless we deal with this moment now seriously. Jesus is always on the edge of our experience and we step over and take a risk, that's when he's here. So I've asked Daz to come and lead us in a song. And um, the words of the song are, for the sake of the world, stir up a fire in me. This is, Lord, would you do something in me so that it has a knock-on effect to everybody around me? It's a beautiful song. I don't know how many of you know it. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put some pens and some post-it stickers around the front. And we're just going to have a moment of silence. But the thing is, my invitation to all of us today, and I've got some names I'm going to write on this, is who are the people I really, really, really want to introduce to Jesus? It might be family members, it might be friends, it might be work colleagues, it might be neighbours. Have a think about who do you want to introduce to Jesus? And what we'll do as we sing this song, or it's sung over us, stir up a fire in me, we will just come and we'll write their names, or just a first name, <laughs> um, just a first name on a post-it, and as an act of worship, we're bringing and sticking that name on the cross, saying, Jesus, you signed your death warrant in Mark chapter 2. You knew that it was what it was going to take to forgive us. We want these people to know your forgiveness. We want to bring them to you. And we're praying that as we do that, God would do something in our hearts that we take the risk and bring our friends to Jesus. Does that make sense? It's one of those response moments in worship. If that doesn't work for you, please don't feel under any pressure to do it. But for some of us to physically outwork what Jesus is saying to us this morning is really helpful to put a name on a post-it and stick it to the cross saying, Jesus, use me to introduce this person to you. Because we're only responsible for the asking. The rest is up to him. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Jesus, thank you that you signed your own death warrant in Mark chapter 2 so willingly. You're an amazing God. Lord, go tell the world is a lovely title. But it means nothing unless I take a step into those risky spaces, into those adventurous spaces into those relationships that you have put me in for such a time as this. Oh Jesus, in these moments, fill us with your spirit. 
that we might be your missionaries and prepare the hearts of the people whose names we put on this cross. That the forgiveness and salvation you won at such a price would not be an experience we keep to ourselves. For the sake of the world, stir up a fire in us, Lord, we pray. That was today's episode of Holy Baptist Church Podcast. We hope it's prompted you to want to follow Jesus, hopefully a lot, but even just a little bit more closely. If you have any questions about what you've heard in today's episode or you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, you can email us, gotquestions at holybaptist.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. It would really make our day. If you want to hear more from us, just a reminder, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can download the Holy Baptist Church app from the Apple App Store or Google Play to hear it as well. Simply search Holy Baptist Church. Thank you again for listening to Holy Baptist Church Podcast. We pray God will bless you and we'll see you next time.